He thought that great injustice had been done to him and always spoke in bitter terms of the U.S. government. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. A Dutch nobleman, American businessman, embezzler, con man, colonizer. Despite a complicated and contradictory history, what is clear is that no one played a greater role in helping the Austins establish the first Anglo colony in Texas. This week, we're looking at the complicated life of the self-styled Baron de Bastrop. But first, what do you put in the back window of your double cab dually truck in Texas? Uh, I would put a sticker of Calvin uh, peeing on whatever brand of truck yours is not. So if yours is a Ford, <laughs> he's peeing on a symbol of a Dodge or of a, of a Chevy. Well, here's the thing. I actually literally was having a text read with a friend uh, and giving him a hard time about Ford trucks. And uh, he you know, said, well, you know what Ford stands for? But he came back with a good one. He said, uh, first on race day, man, every time. <laughs> Uh, there's another, dead there's, what, uh, I like to find the positive uh, yeah. ones that you take the positive or, ones. Uh, or an F-word old rebuilt Dodge. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Yeah, mm. see, that's the thing. you got to find the positive in life. <laughs> First on race day. Okay. So uh, back of my pickup, I would, I would highly encourage anybody to put some nice come and take it merchandise back there. You know, particularly something that's maybe podcast centric. Um, or put your PBRA sticker because that... You know, gotta have that street cred. Well, Dooley can pull a, a Dooley can pull a uh, a bull tra- you know, a tra- a trailer with a bull. So or horses. Yeah. Trucks well, can trucks um, are good at moving goods all across this great land of ours, Sean. Yeah, especially Dooley. <laughs> <laughs> well, we never had a Dooley, but um, my dad's truck at one point, his old uh, Chevy Silverado had uh, one of those cool full-window vinyl stickers of an eagle soaring majestically over the mountains. So maybe I'd get one of those. I don't know. I think that works. I was going to say, that only lived long enough for us to get the sliding window in the back. And Ah. then that had to go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, this has been Truck Talk with uh, Sean and Scott and Mike. (laughs) (laughs) In December of 1820... Legend has it that a despondent Moses Austin was walking across the plaza of the Spanish capital of Texas, San Antonio. The former Missouri lead merchant and banker, hoping to restore his fortunes, had been rejected in his plan to settle 300 American families in Spanish Texas. By chance, he encountered a handsome older gentleman whom he known from his time in Spanish Missouri 20 years earlier. The gentleman claimed to be a nobleman named the Baron de Bastrop. Bastrop knew Moses well, and offered to speak on his behalf to the Spanish officials and lend what help his reputation could provide. Texas history would change irrevocably due to this chance meeting. The man known as Baron de Bastrop, Felipe Enrique Neri, was well known to Spanish authorities. He was a prosperous businessman who had been in Texas since 1807 and had been a colonial impresario before that in Spanish Louisiana at the end of the 18th century. Locals were pretty sure he wasn't actually a nobleman, since nobody knew of any Dutch baronies named Bastrop. Some said he was an American adventurer, others perhaps a French nobleman or a Prussian soldier of fortune. But nobody pressed too hard, and 
Most accepted his courtly manners, his impressive bearing, and his genial nature. It wasn't until the 1950s, a quarter and a century after his death, that his true story was revealed. Felipe Enrique Neri, self-styled Baron de Bastrop, was born Philip Hendrik Nering Bugel, that's a O with an umlaut, in the Dutch South American colony of Guyana on November 23, 1759. He was the son of a judge in colonial service named Conrad Lawrence Nering and Maria Jacoba Cravenger Bugel. That is a hard word to say, people. Due to his family status, Philip carried both his father's and his mother's last names. Around 1764, the family, which included Philip's older brother and younger sister, returned to Holland. Philip's mother died shortly after they arrived. Philip's father, who remarried, died nine years later when Philip was 13. He was educated in Holland and in 1779 enlisted in the cavalry of the Upper Issel province. Bogle married a young woman from a wealthy family, Georgine Wuffelein Francois Le Crama Einheilholt in Oldeboorn, Holland, on April 28, 1782, probably after he was discharged from service. The Bogles had five children, Susanna, born in 1783, Christina, 1785, Conrad, 1786, died in 1788, just two years old, Martha, 1788, and Augustina, born in 1790. They lived in Leowarden, where Bogle served as collector of general taxes for the province of Friesland. This appointment, as well as his family history and prosperous marriage, suggests that he was a staunch supporter of the aristocracy during the late 18th century revolution period that engulfed Western Europe. He always gave the French invasion of Holland as his reason for leaving the country, but in fact he left for different reasons, which are still controversial to this day. On May 3rd, 1793, Philip didn't show up for work at his tax collector's office in Leuwarden. Within days, it was discovered that an amount equal to around a quarter of a million dollars was missing. On June 1st, an advertisement was placed in a local newspaper by a group of men calling themselves the High Honorable Gentlemen of Deputy States of Friesland. That's a, that's a real Dutch term there. They were backed by the Court of Justice, and it accused Bogle of the crime of stealing the money, and it offered a reward of a thousand gold ducats for his return. The honorable gentleman also asked any authorities to arrest this criminal if they found him, and they promised to reimburse any expenses of the arrest and extradition in addition to the reward. However, no arrest was ever made, and no one ever claimed the reward. For many years, it was thought that Bogle abandoned his family in his escape and knocked around Europe for a few years casting a blight on his reputation that in many ways overshadowed the pretty much agreed-to fact that he had embezzled a quarter million dollars of taxpayer money. However, in recent years, evidence has come to light that a sailing ship, the Brothers, left Hamburg, Germany, and arrived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on September 25, 1793, just four months after Bogle vanished. Among its passengers are listed a Philip Hendrick Bastrop, with wife Georgina Wolfelein Francois Nicolama Bastrop, and daughters Susanna, Christina, Martha, and Augustina Bastrop. Bastrop was a common, if not particularly widespread, name used in Germany, but it's not likely that a family named Bastrop fleeing Europe for the New World would have the exact same names as the disgraced Dutch tax collector. Did you say Martha? <laughs> <laughs> Uh. 
Little is known about the Bastrops in the U.S. It is known that they became U.S. citizens and may have settled in Maryland. According to a 1795 census, a family under the name PHNB Tot Bastrop immigrated to Frederick County, Maryland. The term Tot indicates a meaning of including, referring to himself and the family Bastrop. At some point, the Bastrops purchased a plantation in Frederick County and lived in Maryland until at least the year 1800, according to the census. It is known that by 1803, Georgina was back in the Netherlands, living close to Amsterdam, and Dutch records show that their youngest daughter, Augustine, was married in the Netherlands in 1810, followed by the rest of her sisters through the year 1817. Georgina died in 1816. Philip, though, neither stayed with his family in Maryland, nor returned to Holland, though. He set about reinventing himself and reviving his fortune. By April 1795, Philip showed up in Spanish Louisiana, claiming to be the Baron de Bastrop, a displaced Dutch nobleman fleeing the invasion of his home country by the revolutionary French hordes. Uh, the French hordes, we will get you. He presented himself to the officials in Spanish Louisiana, seeking permission to do business in this prosperous territory which stretched the Mississippi and Missouri rivers. He gained a passport under the name Felipe Enrique Neri, which is a Hispanicized version of his Dutch name, obviously minus the bagel part, and we won't be using that word again in this podcast. At the time of Bastrop's arrival in Spanish Louisiana, the territory was in a similar situation to what Texas would be in 20 years later. Spain struggled to maintain control of its vast territory, and the governor of Louisiana, the Baron de Carondelet, a real baron in fact, was fighting the westward migration of Americans. Bastrop proposed bringing in European and American immigrants into the area to create a buffer zone. Others, like Daniel Boone and George Rogers Clark, would propose similar schemes. On June 21, 1796, the Spanish governor in New Orleans approved Bastrop's colonization enterprise. Bastrop requested 12 square leagues, the equivalent of 846,291 acres, for a settlement in the Washita Valley near the present-day city of Monroe, Louisiana. His goal was to have settlers plant wheat, and he would own the mill for the wheat, ensuring an extra profit for himself. Bastrop went on to establish many partnerships in mercantile enterprises, hoping to make a fortune. He also bought and sold land that he didn't actually own, as the contract for settlement of his grant was never actually approved by the Spanish king. This led to lawsuits and countersuits, but also more land speculation on credit, since apparently that's what everyone did in those days. Go listen to the Jim Bowie episode. <laughs> yeah. And the Moses Austin episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a French traveler in the territory at the time named Charles Cesaire Robin wrote this about the Baron de Bastrop. During the approximately three years that this establishment lasted, the Dutch baron was occupied from start to finish with building a mill for the future races of Wachita, where, when the weather permitted, he employed 20 to 25 workers for one piaster a day, paid from Delay Serpi, who is a New Orleans merchant's funds. At the same time, he took vigilant care to ensure that nothing harmful to his trading privilege was imported to the post. Extending his surveillance much too far, he caused the inhabitants to lack everything and to pay dearly for the smallest things. His blind cupidity prevented him from noticing that he was the biggest victim, because if he had contributed to generously provisioning his canton, he would thus have convinced a large number of colonists to come and establish themselves on his concession. 
few men inspired on the outside so much confidence and interest. A handsome physique, a pleasant and calm face, simple and relaxed manners, agreeable if not brilliant conversation. He was affable with no apparent pretensions, always obliging and the best master in his own house. His defects were the vices of the mind rather than of the heart. Always seductive, without much knowledge or ability, he had, without enriching himself, ruined all who joined in his projects. All his steps were marked with disaster. In Louisiana, all of the governors and men of substance were captivated by him. He left the Wachita without having earned a cent and having done more damage than the wickedest of men. That's a backhanded, a long backhanded compliment. Or a very pleasant insult. Due to the many lawsuits Bastrop was involved with, these partnerships proved unsuccessful and left him bankrupt. When the United States took possession of Louisiana in December 1803, there were various competing ownership claims attached to the Bastrop Tract, including those of the settlers. Part of the Bastrop Tract was even leased by Aaron Burr at one point, possibly for his famed Western Breakaway plot. Litigation over ownership of this land continued for nearly half a century. In December 1850, the U.S. Supreme Court finally ruled that the agreement between Bastrop and the Spanish government did not give him title to the land. The following March, the U.S. Congress enacted legislation so that all settlers who could prove they had occupied and cultivated land in the Bastrop grant for 20 years would receive legal title to their holdings. All this spelled an end to Bastrop in Louisiana and Missouri, though not before he'd made the acquaintance of one Moses Austin, Missouri lead merchant and fellow big dreamer and fortune hunter in a tavern in Missouri. Bastrop decided to head west to Spanish Texas, where he still knew Spanish officials who thought highly of him. In 1805, he set up shop, first in Nacogdoches, and then to the capital, San Antonio. He initially set up a freighting business and dreamed up new schemes to settle Anglo and European settlers in Texas, though all those plans came to nothing. Still, his charm and manners helped him to become a leading member of San Antonio society. In 1810, he was appointed second alcalde, or mayor, in the Ayuntamiento, or the city council, at San Antonio de Bejar, and became a Spanish citizen. For the next decade, he was a well-regarded and prosperous favorite. Eccentric and flamboyant, but very well liked and highly regarded. By 1820, the winds of change came to Texas, blowing from the south as the revolution in Mexico began to intensify, and from the east as the American economy collapsed, ruining men's fortunes. It was in this year that the fateful meeting between Bastrop and Moses Austin occurred in that plaza in San Antonio. As Moses' son Stephen wrote later, in crossing the public square, my father accidentally met the Baron de Bastrop, they had seen each other once before in the United States, having met at a tavern when traveling many years previous. He invited my father to his room, where he lived in great poverty, but his influence with the government was considerable, and was very great with the inhabitants of Behar, who loved him for the benevolence of his disposition. He was a man of education, talents, and experience, and thoroughly initiated in all the mysteries of the government house. Bastrop personally interceded with Governor Antonio Maria Martinez on behalf of Moses Austin. He pointed out that Moses still possessed Spanish citizenship from his time in Missouri so many years before. Martinez reconsidered and approved Austin's project to establish an Anglo-American colony of 300 settlers in Texas. 
Of course, Bastrop's efforts were expected to be rewarded, and he was appointed to serve as intermediary with the Spanish government for Moses and his son Stephen, who took over for his father when he died in 1821. Bastrop helped guide Stephen through the tumultuous period when the Spanish colony would give way first to the Mexican Empire and then to the Mexican Republic. In July of 1823, Luciano Garcia appointed Bastrop Commissioner of Colonization for the Austin Colony, with the authority to issue land titles and collect a fee for doing so, though it was only a modest one. In return for his help, Austin supported Bastrop's election in September 24, 1823, to the provincial deputation at Behar. The settlers in turn chose him as a representative to the legislature of the new state of Cahia and Texas in May 1824. During his tenure as representative of Texas at the capital, Saltillo, Bastrop sought legislation favorable to the cause of immigration and to the interests of settlers. He secured passage of the Colonization Act of 1825, and he was instrumental in the passage of an act establishing a port at Galveston. The Austin colonists looked on Bastrop with as much affection as the residents of San Antonio had, although with a bit of a wry view of his stories, which constantly changed. One colonist said, When the Baron first came to Austin Colony, D thinks he was nearly 80 years of age, but very hale and active. He was, says Judge Duke, a native of Holland, but at an early age went into the service of Frederick the Great of Prussia. He soon distinguished himself and was ennobled by Frederick. In the later period, he received from the King of Spain a large grant of land in Louisiana, but after the acquisition of that territory by the United States, he could not sustain his claim. He thought that great injustice had been done to him and always spoke in bitter terms of the U.S. government. He always signed his name, El Baron de Bastrop. According to the Mexican system of the time, his legislative salary was paid by contributions from his constituents. The contributions were not generous. He also had lost his mule freight business, presumably to the booning ox cart trade. He lived alone, splitting his time between modest rooms in Saltillo and Bejar, and was never seen alone in the company of a woman. People who knew him said that he often spoke with sadness at not having seen his family in over 20 years. Bastrop died on February 23, 1827, at the age of 67 in Saltillo, Mexico. He did not leave enough money to pay for his burial expenses. His fellow legislators donated the funds to reimburse Juan Antonio Padilla for the funeral expenses. Bastrop was buried in Saltillo. Even in his last will and testament, he continued to claim noble background, stating that his parents' names were Conrado Lorenzo Neri, Baron de Bastrop, and Susana Maria Bray Banguin. After his death, and thanks to the writings of Stephen F. Austin and the original 300 settlers of the Austin colony, the memory of the fictional Baron de Bastrop lived on. Time hasn't always been kind to his reputation, and he was often cast as a con man, a fraud, an embezzler, and a scoundrel who ruined his family name and abandoned a wife and children. In some ways history bears that out, but in many others he was just a hapless schemer who dreamed bigger dreams than his capacity or ability could support. But there can be no doubt that on that fateful day in December 1820, he changed the destiny of Texas forever. So when you are driving through the town of Bastrop or through Bastrop County, stop and think a good thought for the Baron, and don't judge him too harshly. Or judge him harshly, you know. <laughs> You're free to your opinions, I guess. What a crazy dreamer and sort of a bit of a con man, though. 
I mean, that's kind of. Yeah, he he had bigger dreams and he had the ability to, to actually uh, fulfill. I love the, the, the quote from the, the French writer who, who said, you know, he he was he left without earning a cent and having done more damage than the wickedest of men. You know, all of his steps were marked with disaster. Well, if I've learned one thing from this is that I'm going to just tell people that I am uh, distended from, you know, uh, Dutch royalty or maybe just make up some other like great stuff. Just say you're the king of Poland. I'm the king of Poland. Really? <laughs> yep. That's what it says on my business card. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the interesting thing is that the, the one thing that he did well uh, was was help Austin with the land grants uh, and not just help him get through the political side, but he actually did help ensure that the land that the colonists got in the, in the, the Austin's colony was clear title to that land because he did have that experience of not having clear title to the land in Louisiana. You know, if, if that had gone differently, he might, he probably wouldn't have done as well, but he might've done differently in Louisiana. But, but I, I mean, I've read several books, uh, uh, that have talked about this, um, Brandis's Lone Star Nation and uh, some other other history books that t- talked about that that Bastrop did ensure that there was and Austin as well there was clean title uh, between the settlers and and the land that they took possession of in in the you know the Scots ancestral homeland of of the the Aust- the Austin colony uh, area. But uh, that's the that's the thing that I think that the takeaway that I got is that he did have the experience to help with ensured that was not an issue but you know he was not able to enrich himself ever uh and yeah you know, all of his businesses did come to nothing so it's it is kind of sad that that he had these big dreams and was never able to to live up to them and it, yeah. but it's interesting yeah. also that it's interesting also that it, that you know the in, the information about the ship with his family that was discovered in 2003 so you know yeah. Within just the last fifteen years, you know, we're we're still finding information out about this person. So that's really interesting to me as well. What about your trip through Bastrop really inspired you to write about this guy, other than just the name? Does it was there something that jumped out and you saw like like a marker or something or did you No, just... not really. Uh, I mean, I I've known about Bastrop through books and stuff that I've read, but I was like, oh, we're driving through the town of the Dutch con man. and sitting down and actually reading a little more about him, like, well, he was a con man, but he also was kind of an honest con man. So, you know, he, he was a crook, but he was, an, he was a dishonest, honest con man. He was a genuine guy, I guess is the best I could say about it. But I, the more I read about him and the, the more I found out on, on different websites and different accountings, I mean, it was, it became more interesting about him. Well, what I find interesting is, is that like, like so many people in Texas, you go, Oh, well, that's just a blank. You know, you, they're kind of a one-note thing, and then you really dig into the history of them, and you go, oh, wow, no, there's there's actually a lot more here. There's a lot more interactions. The Creed Taylors or the uh, Santa Anas or all those pieces of you go, wow, there's a lot more to these people than just, you know, kind of a one-note, oh, he's a con man. Yeah, and then a the connection to Aaron Burr, and, you know, uh, that was interesting. And, and then he had a, you know, a, a place in Louisiana history, and Texas history and Maryland history, apparently, without anybody even knowing it. Yeah. yeah. See, Aaron Burr's ruined me forever because that one commercial where the guy tries to answer Aaron Burr. Burr. 
<laughs> Every time I see it, I, that's all I can think of. Sorry. Sorry, Hamilton fans, but that's my that's my that's where Aaron Burns for me. <laughs> He's a guy with a mouth full of peanut butter. Well, I mean, I think this story just uh, reinforces the fact that uh, Texas is a place where international history and trails all kind of converge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this guy came from Europe and ended up in Texas and became instrumental enough to the, the foundation of the Texas that we know. Yeah, and, and again, it's a it's a place to reinvent yourself, and he really reinvented himself. Yeah. I mean, he, he really reinvented literally, himself. Literally. Way <laughs> more than most people. <laughs> I am surprised that he um, did not start a newspaper, however. He didn't, yeah, he did, didn't law clerk and didn't start a newspaper, but other than that, seems pretty Texan. And I also like the fact that he got elected and, uh, you know, spent some time in government. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max John with two ends. And I am Scotticus. Well, if you like this show, or if you claim to be royalty or have some kind of title in Europe, why not tell your friends and tell them what we're doing? Go leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out. Find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-a-Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. Thank you.